understanding Elon Musk, patient input, and analyzing extremophiles underground. I'm Kara Hetland, and this is In the Moment. Imagine leaving some microbes underground for a six-month study, and it took four years to get back to it. Magdalena Osborne joins us to discuss the experiment. A new frontline looks at Elon Musk and his takeover of Twitter. What have they learned, and what does the First Amendment really mean to the social media site now known as X? Kevin Wooster joins us today with his latest blog, On the Other Hand, and we'll learn about a new community health needs assessment that asks some big questions. We're broadcasting live today from SDPV's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Kara Hetland in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment, and the news is first. And I'm Kara Hetland sitting in today for Lori Walsh. Well, it's a simple survey asking a big question. What do you need in your community to be at your healthiest? Sanford Health is completing a community health needs assessment. That survey is open to anyone living near a Sanford facility from now until December 31st. Natasha Smith is here to tell us more about the survey, its goals, and the programs that have come out of past assessments. Natasha is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Sanford Health, and she she joins me by phone. Welcome, Natasha and thanks for being here. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me today. So let's just, uh, let's start first and explain a a little bit about what this uh, needs assessment is and what it is you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the community health needs assessment is really a process in which, you know, I call kind of our listening ear. It's a way for our organization in partnership with the city and Avera to really have a listening ear out into our communities, um, listening to the needs, uh, listening to the gaps that exist as it relates to, you know, social determinants of health and accessing health care. And so, um, as you said, it's a a rather quick survey. It's a a short survey. The process is um, rather streamlined, but it's super important for us as a healthcare system to be asking the questions. And who is it for? Anyone and everyone? Okay. Yep. Anybody can take this survey. You know, you alluded to it, but if you're near a Stanford Health facility, um, you have a really important voice in helping shape, you know, the information that we are using to craft strategy and uh, healthcare delivery. And so if you uh, are in our community, you're a really important stakeholder, you know, in, in the process. You said it was a partnership between the city and Avera, the city of Sioux Falls, I'm assuming, right? Correct. But this is open for all of eastern South Dakota. So explain that partnership just a little bit. Yeah, Um, I think we do more when we work together. Uh, We've got the good fortune. I think we're very privileged of having two large healthcare systems um, right here in our community. And so that working together, I think, really streamlines the process. Like I said, it prevents like a duplication uh, of efforts. And I also think it really helps when we um, are strategizing healthcare delivery. Um, You mentioned it kind of at the onset of our conversation, but there are a lot of different bodies of work that have historically been born out of um, this process. 
and working with our other healthcare partners is an important piece of that. Um, I think about the link, you know, the mental health services that are now offered in Sioux Falls and how that's a really great partnership that was born from doing the survey, listening to our communities, identifying the mental health care needs. And then I think the beautiful part is we've got our partners already at the table to get to work as it relates to problem solving. So the last time you did a similar survey was in what, 2021? Correct. Yep. Three years ago. Three years ago. And so out of that came what? Out of that survey came what? So a couple of things, you know, the access need uh, is one of the themes that was identified. We know that accessing healthcare is really important. Um, There are barriers to that, though. You know, surveying a very rural footprint, certainly the miles people travel can become a barrier. Um, Language can be a barrier. Um, And so those are two, I think, key pillars of work. Um, that we have championed over the last three years to eliminate some of the barriers. So our virtual care initiative where we are um, reaching across zip codes to, you know, assist our patients with specialty needs um, and assisting with interpreter and translation services, those are, you know, some of the pillars of work I think that have been born out of the process um, over the last few years. I love the question, what do you need in your community to be at your healthiest? Because it could take you down uh, a path for uh, housing initiatives. It could take you down a path Mm -hmm. for child care, uh, since we're in a bit of a crisis in the state of South Dakota when it comes to access to child care. So it could really take you to many other other social uh, issues and not so much health care issues. Are are you prepared to, to step in and help solve those problems? So it's a really good point. You know, one of the things that we say in healthcare is that so much of someone's overall health picture um, is outside of, you know, our four walls. It takes place outside of the clinic setting or outside of the hospital. Um, 40% of someone's overall healthcare picture uh, is actually kind of rooted in the socioeconomic factors or what we call social determinants of health, social influences of health housing, transportation, access to food, those are all uh, big determinants in someone's healthcare picture and, um, you know, their healthcare outcomes. Um, I think about the ways that, you know, our organization has stepped in to meet some of those needs, most recently doing some of the food pantry work right in our clinics, um, getting fresh, healthy, you know, food to our patients as they visit our, our pediatric clinic, as as an example. And so, um, I would say yes, there there's a lot of need. We know that. We know that we need partnerships, you know, to meet those needs. Uh, but also, I think just gaining this information and gleaning these insights from our communities really does help us prioritize, you know, the different social needs that impact someone's ability to access their healthcare. What if you had to to put your finger on the pulse? What what are you uh, expecting to hear? You know, I think that we'll probably see some of the same themes. Um, you know, we know that in the last several years, um, these social determinants of health have grown uh, in terms of you know housing and food insecurity. You name child care. We know that those needs have all grown. I think access and you know the mental health 
uh, will be two um, that certainly bubble up for our community. Um, and so I don't know that we will be surprised by that, but I do, you know, I have a lot of confidence in how we use that information to continue to prioritize work. Thank you so much, Natasha. We're going to have more information on how to access Sanford Health's Community Health Needs Assessment on our website. That's at sdpb.org news. My guest has been Natasha Smith, Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Sanford Health. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland. So let's take a step back and remember what it was like in December of 2019. That's pre-pandemic days. What were you doing that month? Do you remember? Well, Magdalena Osborne is the experiment principal investigator for the Deep Mine Microbial Observatory. And she was studying microbes at the Sanford Underground Research Facility. And it's been Four years uh, since she's been back, Dr. Osborne joins me now by phone to discuss what happened. Welcome, and thanks for being here today. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So let's uh, let's go back to uh, December of 2019 and tell me a little bit about your experiment. Sure. So our trip in December of 2019 was actually um, one step in what had been an ongoing five-year-long time series looking at the deep subsurface biosphere. And so what we have at the Sanford Underground Research Facility is we call it the Deep Mind Microbial Observatory. And what that is, is it's a network of different sites. The shallowest are on the 800-foot level, so that means 800 feet underground. And then the deepest are down on the 4850, so that's almost a mile, with a couple in between. And so we have these sites that we've been accessing regularly since about 2014, 2015, depending on the site. Um, and so our trip in 2019 was one more trip in what had been about a, every three, maybe three to four times a year sort of time series. And so we thought it was just a regular trip. And we deployed some experiments um, on that trip in addition to our regular sampling um, that were designed for microbes to colonize and grow on the surfaces of minerals that we were then going to pick up in about six months. But, you know, <laughs> the world had other plans. The world had other plans. And then when you, you went back recently uh, for the first time, and what did you find? Yeah, so we went back um, in September, and that was actually my first time being back in longer than that. I had had students and postdocs uh, kind of running the show for a while, and so... Um, this was my first time back in, I think, six years. Um, and what we found is that that network of six sites actually looks remarkably similar to how they looked before. Um, and maybe that shouldn't be surprising because the subsurface fluids are doing their thing and they don't really care if we visit them or not. Um, and we also found that one set of those experiments that were deployed actually survived and was intact, flowing, happily colonizing that whole time we had been gone. So that's a really exciting set of samples that we were able to collect. Happy microbes are good microbes? Happy microbes. And one real challenge with subsurface microbes is their mode of life is a slow one, right? So these are microbes that are living in subsurface fractures. They live on the surface of minerals and they they breathe things that are dissolved in the water or the minerals themselves. Sometimes they're fixing their own organic carbon. 
And so this isn't the kind of life that does much very quickly. But it's really hard in science to get at that long-term perspective because normally you have to collect the experiment and analyze the data and publish a paper and graduate and those sorts of things that are important to, to students and researchers at all levels. Um, and so it's rare actually that you can let an experiment go that long um, and see what happens. Talk a little bit about the subsurface fluids, just a little bit to paint that picture uh, because it is kind of wet down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's surprising to many people. Some parts of it are intuitive, right? So many of your listeners probably get their water out of groundwater wells. Um, and so those, we, we drill down wells into what are called shallow aquifers. And usually those are in things like sandstones that where there's a lot of space in between those grains. Um, and that water is usually not that old, but older than you might expect. So maybe years, tens of years, maybe hundreds of years. Um, some of our deepest, biggest aquifers are much, much older than that. When you're talking about the Black Hills, that's mostly um, a terrain with rocks that are much older and much harder. And so instead of an aquifer and a sandstone, which might make a good well, you're talking about big fracture-driven porosity and permeability. So it's not sort of that underground river, it's these fracture networks that have a surprising amount of water in them. And so hydrogeologists are pretty good at modeling how old this water is. So where it recharged, that's the word we use for, so it rained down somewhere and got underground somewhere and was ventilated to the surface. And then it traveled along a flow path for a certain amount of time before it came out in um, the mine in our case, or sometimes they're still traveling. And so looking at the hydrology of the fracture uh, aquifers, so these are fracture-based aquifers, um, in and around the former Homestead gold mine, the oldest fluids are modeled to be greater than 10,000 years old. And by fluid, I mean water. I'm sorry. That's a bad scientist habit. It just means the liquids and the gases together. But So we're talking about liquids flowing around underground, um, mostly pretty, pretty tame groundwaters. Um, but some of them are really, really old. And that means that they get to interact with those rocks for a long time. And so uh, just quickly, because we only have a few minutes left, I'm just wondering, uh, in this four-year break that you had from this research, what, what has changed with you and now what it is you're looking for? Yeah, well, I mean, four years is both a very long time in sort of the timescale of students and people coming in and out of the lab and the skills that we have but also a very short time in terms of what is, you know, what will eventually be a career of research, right? I've had papers sitting on my desk for four years, so it's not that ridiculous. Um, but it also, the pandemic in particular, and so the, the state of affairs that was the last four years forced us all to learn a lot of new tricks, right? So we all got good at Zoom. We all got good at sort of doing our best with sort of minimal resources. You know, we've had these lab shortages where, you know, we haven't been able to get pipette tips and things like that um, that you would have never conceived of before the pandemic. One thing that it did for me is I started a new research project in Mammoth Cave National Park. I've been a caver all of my life, but I had never actually done geomicrobiology in caves. Um, and so I started a big research campaign with a couple of students 
at Mammoth Cave because we can drive there from Chicago. And so while we couldn't get permission from the university to fly to South Dakota, we could uh, get permission to hop in our cars. And as long as we kept our group very small, we could go into caves and sample. Um, and what was neat about that is I gained some perspective in terms of what subsurface microbiology looks like in different places. And it really gave me something to compare to when I'm wandering around at demo. And um, I noticed some new things. It's amazing how more life experience gives you new eyes, even when, you know, you've been a scientist for a long time. <laughs> I want to thank you for taking time and coming on the program, Dr. Osborne. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. And now we're going to uh, talk a little bit about Elon Musk and the acquisition of Twitter. And joining me now is director and producer and correspondent James Jacoby. He joins me by phone to talk about a new PBS Frontline two-hour special. James, thanks for taking time and coming on the program today. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate you being here. So, uh, in a nutshell, how would you describe Elon Musk? Um, in a <laughs> nutshell, I'd say he is one of the great innovators of our time. Um, as we know, he's transformed the, the car business with, with electric vehicles, with Tesla, and he's doing incredible things with space travel. But I think that um, he is also uh, a very controversial figure, especially when it comes to um, his purchase of Twitter and the fact that he's, you know, turned much more political in the past few years and has um, has been, you know, kind of espousing some uh, rather uh, difficult ideas. And um, and so he's become much more controversial. What do you think the turning point was in his life for uh, for his stance that he's taking on Twitter? Yeah, I think. Um, it, it certainly was during the pandemic, and I think we all have friends or relatives or uh, each of us has changed during the pandemic and that experience. But for Musk, um, you know, it sort of began with uh, initially the government wanting to uh, shut down his factories and issuing stay-at-home orders. He really didn't like that. Um, he, he doesn't really like to be told what to do. He's not somebody who likes rules and regulations and found that that was overbearing. Um, he had downplayed the sort of um, the, the the issue of the pandemic, thought it wasn't going to really um, be a big issue, uh, which, of course, it turned out to be. Um, and I think from there felt as though, as a lot of people have felt, that, that there's a sort of groupthink in the media, in the educational establishment and scientific establishment, as well as in social media companies, um, that sort of kind of is, is perceived to be stifling alternative viewpoints and, and ideas. And I think Musk really glommed onto that and gained a very big following uh, espousing those ideas. So what is, what is the state of Twitter or X, uh, as it's called now? What, what is the state of it today, in your opinion? Um, well, the state of it is that, one, it's, it's difficult to tell exactly what the state of it is. Um, you know, Twitter used to be a very transparent company. It used to give out a lot of data to researchers and others about, you know, for instance, misinformation or hate speech or other problems on its platform and how they were addressing them, how they were addressing government requests uh, abroad to censor certain information or certain users. 
Twitter under Musk is far less transparent, so we really don't know much about um, how the company is operating. So really, it's a matter of uh, anecdotal evidence in a lot of cases, um, you know, of what your own experience is. I think some people feel as though it's a better experience. Some people have the opposite impression. Um, I, you know, it's absolutely true that Musk has re-platformed certain voices that old Twitter had taken down, whether it be the former president um, or it be um, various folks like uh, neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin. Um, and Musk has wanted to make it into a free speech platform. Um, and that has led certain groups that, that study issues like hate speech and, and disinformation to find, at least in their research, that the prevalence of hate speech and misinformation are up on Twitter, on X. And, you know, he really, uh, at, the, at the beginning of, of all of this, he really was being elevated in the, here's somebody who really values the First Amendment and freedom yep. of speech. What's your take? Well, I think, you know, my take is that he does value um, freedom of speech on a certain level. I mean, who doesn't? Um, I think it's, it's a fundamental value in, in a democratic society. I don't think that his understanding of free speech dynamics was particularly sophisticated. And I think he's had a very steep learning curve since he bought Twitter into what that really means. I mean, the first misconception is that, you know, when it comes to the First Amendment and free speech in America, that the First Amendment really protects against government censorship from the government curtailing um, the speech of of Americans. It it doesn't really apply uh, to to, to private companies like Twitter or X or Facebook or these other companies. And so I think that that's one thing that's really important to distinguish here. And I'm not sure that Musk really had a great appreciation for that distinction um, before he bought the company. But also I think that, you know, I think that he's had to have a, a, a steep learning curve about what it means to run a social media platform and have to really contend with the idea of disinformation about elections or voting or pandemics or vaccines. And what do you do? I mean, you what responsibility do you take as a company like X or Twitter? Um, to, what, what's your responsibility when it comes to lies going viral on your platform? And I think that 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 rubs up against his his initial impression of free speech. And the other thing is that he's also used the platform to go and shut down certain critics or voices um, or suppress certain views, which is, of course, counter to everything that he had said before he bought it. So there's a lot of contradiction there, and there's a a steep learning curve for him, clearly. Seems to me he forgot about libel and uh, defamation in all of that, too. Well, libel and defamation don't necessarily um, apply to a social media platform. That's the difference. So the social media platforms like Twitter are not libel when it comes to, in in certain cases, they may be. But it's very, very difficult to make that case because they don't consider themselves media companies or publishers. So um, it's a different type of thing than, for instance, you or me when it comes to our, our job working on public media. And so how do you think X is going to influence the next election, presidential election, or will it? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's, look, first of all, he is making X into a platform. You know, for instance, he did during the, the first Republican debate. Um, he invited uh, former President Trump to do an interview with, uh, with Tucker Carlson on, on X. Tucker Carlson has a new show there. Um, that's where he's brought it after he was kicked off of Fox News. Um, Ron DeSantis made his presidential announcement, as some of us may remember, on, on X. 
which was a technical disaster. But um, but uh, that's I, I think he's trying to make it a, a, a political place. Um, it already was, but he, I think he's trying more so. But I think in terms of misinformation, there are great concerns out there that um, where when there are fewer people at these companies doing content moderation and minding you know, whether there are coordinated efforts to sow distrust in election results and other things, um, there's a higher chance or a highly higher likelihood that these platforms can be manipulated to spread lies. And that, that, that should be of concern to all of us. My guest has been the documentary's director and producer correspondent, James Jacoby. Thank you so much for taking time and coming on the program today. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And you can watch Elon Musk's Twitter takeover now at PBS Frontline website. It's on YouTube or on the PBS app. And we'll have a link with more information on our website at sdpb.org news. You're in the moment on SDPB. You're in the moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland, in today for Lori Walsh. And Kevin Wooster is author of the weekly column, On the Other Hand. And you may have noticed that there wasn't a column last week. That's because Kevin was on a well-earned vacation through the rivers, canyons, and deserts of the American West. His trip included stops at the Four Corners Monument, Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon, and of course the Grand Canyon. And it was at the Grand Canyon that he got the best view of his entire trip. And that view was of a few California condors cruising around the skies. The condor is one of the most endangered animals of the world. It's also not the most handsome of Earth's species. In fact, it has a face only an environmentalist could love. And one of those environmentalists is Kevin Wooster, and he's joining me by phone now to recap his trip. Kevin, hi. Welcome. Thanks for being here. It's good to be there. It's uh, Condor certainly is handsome in flight, less handsome up close. Right. I, I looked I up a picture and said, oh, dear, <laughs> <laughs> only a face a mother can love. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So your first or, time or ever at the Grand Canyon. Yeah, 71 years old. How about that? Wow. And, uh, Mary, my wife's first time, too. So, yeah. Okay. So. It, it, well, and everybody tells you, and you've, I'm sure you've been there, most people I know have uh, some multiple times, that you can't understand until you stand there. You know, people will describe it to you, and and uh, everybody kind of says, well, but you you won't know until you get there. And that's really true, you know, and, and sometimes words fail you, and they, for a while they did me, you know, you just kind of stand around. First of all, you have to get over the fear that you're going to fall over because, <laughs> right. uh, you know, <laughs> there was snow uh, on the but, ground when I went uh, the last time yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. I took my kids and my sons-in-law, uh, and um, yeah, we, it was it was a little icy on the rim, so we had to be very extra careful to not slip in. Yeah, yeah. I I would think we didn't have that. It was the weather was beautiful. It's actually a little warm while we were there. The whole trip we had beautiful, sunny, uh, very dry weather. You know, you got to drink a lot of fluids down there. And uh, and the, uh, the the Grand Canyon visit was two nights and three days. Or when we just stayed on the South Rim, we didn't go to the North Rim at all. And that's uh, we've made a pact to go back to the North Rim. I still want to walk down it. I'd want to do the well, hike. I 
I was coming off COVID, as you know, and so I was uh, I was kind of limited in my hiking. We didn't really plan. We our, this trip was for us on the South Rim to get to know the place, and we made a lot of stops and rode the shuttles. And you know, as you know, you can do a lot of walking, a lot of hiking mm-hmm. around just on the trails up on top and along the edge. Mary did go down into it one morning, uh, but only part way down to the bottom, you know, for about a two hour hike down there just to get a sense for it. And it, it told her that, you know, she has to go back and she wants to do it uh, rim to rim and stay down at the camp by the river at the bottom. Um, so we'll probably be going flat back. I don't know if I'm going to do that. I certainly wasn't up to that kind of hiking right. this time. Um but the the great news was she didn't get COVID, so that was good. And <laughs> that was good. We were, you know, because as you probably know, it, it takes a while to, before your full your full strength comes back after you've had that. At least it does for me. So, well, I'm one of the ones that can say that they haven't had COVID yet. So, really, yes. Wow, I know. Well, this is my second time, and you know, I've had all the shots and everything. Although I didn't get the most recent one, I wish I had. Uh, and I would have to say that this was a milder out than the first time and i don't know if that's because of immunity from the first time and the and the inoculations or but there's certainly i I certainly recovered more quickly from this one than i did the first time and i didn't do the oh the antiviral you take which i did before and got a a rebound case um uh, which uh, stephen colbert calls the worst sequel ever So anyway, I was a little bit limited, but I still got to do a lot of hiking up on top. And I didn't have to hike very far to to run into the Hawk Watch guys. Well, yeah, let's talk about the Hawk Watch guys. They just hang out there yeah. with binoculars? Is that what they do? Yeah. Yeah, this is a nonprofit, Hawk Watch International. It's been around for decades to try and keep track of migrating raptors and to to man, you know, to monitor their population trends and and to see which birds are seem to be declining and how they're coming and what their movements are. And they go, and I think it's, they've, they've got a spot. They started watching uh, raptors migration in the fall, late summer, early fall in 91, I think in the Grand Canyon. And, and in 97 moved to Yaki point, which is where we stopped, not knowing that they were nearby and Mary saw a sign that said Hawkwatch uh, Station, follow the signs. And how do you not follow those signs? So we <laughs> did. And uh, I had, you know, been hoping that just by pure luck as going from point to point, I would might see a condor. I had my binoculars and things. But these guys uh, talked about having seen them and when they'd see them and hadn't seen them for a couple of days. And, you know, they said it's obviously it's, so they could have taken off and be up at Zion right now, you know, up in up in Utah because they can travel so far. They're, they're amazing birds in terms of being able to stay in the air for hours and rarely, if ever, flap their wings. Isn't that? I mean, wow. I just, now uh, that's cruising, they, isn't it? Yeah, they can ride the thermals up to twelve, fourteen, fifteen thousand feet, wow. and fly at 50 miles an hour if they want to go because like the the one hawk watch guy said if they decide to take off they'll be at zion in a few hours and uh you know it's completely up to them so they're they're really amazing if homely birds up close 
So and we just, but we didn't think. And so, you know, we said we'd love to see one. He said, well, you know, that's a that's a tough thing. You just never know. And five minutes later, he said we, they were showing us different hawks, sharp shinned hawks, and grouper's hawks, and peregrine falcons, and pointing out different birds and turkey vultures. And he said, you know, I think that's a condor. And sure enough, it was. And then there was another one. Wow. So that, did it take your breath away, like standing at the rim the very first time looking it, looking at the Grand Canyon, it, or was it more? It did. It, it Well, you know, at the rim, the first thing I feel is this tingling that goes from my feet up through my belly, because you have this sense of fear and uh, wonder. And uh, we, I had left my binoculars back at the, back at the cabin, but these guys uh, pointed out and they gave their binoculars to Mary and to me. And we, so we were able to see these condors and also to, fortunately there were hawks flying nearby so we could get a sense of scale and how much bigger they are than a, than a typical hawk. And then they sort of disappeared down below because as you know, there's a lot of room for them to be below you. And, the hawk watchers would go closer to the cliff and look over than Mary and I would. <laughs> and, uh, and so we just waited and he said, you never know, they could catch a you know, thermal and come right up here. So I, and I told him if that happens, I might wet my pants. <laughs> and, and it didn't happen. He seemed a little concerned, you know, older guy, who knows? Uh, and, and that, so it was the last time we saw them was when they sort of went down below and, just sort of evaporated into that grand landscape wow. below us. Yeah. Wow. It was it was great. Really was what I would hope it for. Okay, so were you the only ones that followed the, the sign to the to the Hawk Watch? Uh, or did, were there other people standing there with you? We didn't see anyone while we were there wow. and and they they noticed there's a note there that if you're gonna bring groups, there's a note online uh, about Hawk Watch Anyone is welcome to come stay. You can set up, uh, bring your binoculars, bring lunch, sit out there with them if you're comfortable sitting out where they were uh, for a long time. And But if you bring a group, you're supposed to notify them in advance. And these were a couple of really laid-back dudes. You know, my daughter calls my son and, and me the bird nerds because we rise off looking at birds and things. And these guys were classic bird nerds in the way they looked and talked and, and uh, kind of their, their, uh, their commitment, their enthusiasm. And can you imagine that if you're sitting there every day? I think they sit for nine hours every day. Wow. And they're just watching these birds, often at a distance, sometimes close up, and tracking them and marking down each bird that they see. And it's very important work, you know, and it's, it's more difficult work than you might think, I think, if you got into what could become a grind if you weren't so committed to it. Well, in sharing the knowledge with with two, you know, former journalists walking yeah. walking by. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we probably asked more questions maybe than the average person would and <laughs> and they were very kindly answered them and uh, it was one of the highlights of the trip, uh, certainly for me. I think for Mary too. Okay, so I was just a little girl when I went to the Four Corners. Uh, didn't quite ah. understand why I was sitting there with a foot and hands in each uh, <laughs> each of those uh, squares. But uh, take me there. Um, I haven't been back since I was, you know, in fifth grade. So uh, take me back uh, to that place. 
Well, it's a, it's a very cool place, you know, and it's run by the Navajo Parks and Recreation, the the, the People's uh, Parks and Recreation Department down there, and uh, minimal entry fee. I don't know. I think it was eight dollars or something a person, and it's a very nice area where they have the uh, the monument, the circular spot where the four states come together, and where you would have done that, and where Mary uh, quite easily did a uh, what is it, a down dog mm-hmm. and yoga pose with two hands in each and two feet in the other and I did too which was not nearly as gracefully done (laughs) and uh, managed to not fall on my face while I was doing it and then of course we we stood with two feet in each state uh, you know two states each and held hands and smooched across right hopefully close to the middle (laughs) a four state kiss I called it and uh, you know and there were all people of all ages and people from other lands and other countries and speaking different languages and uh, all doing different goofy poses and taking pictures of each other. And it was really a, a community thing. And then surrounding that, I don't know if they would have had it when you were there, but there were very nice uh, art booths of, uh, of uh, indigenous people, artists that are, were selling different, uh, you know, different works of art. And it was a, very nice stop and a very low key, you know, not a high pressure thing or a lot of uh, requirements, you know, it, it just, uh, it was, and surrounded by the, the, the really, really uh, harsh prairie and then, or not prairie, desert, and then this uh, wonderful little oasis of hmm. people and arts and this coming together, these four states and these many people. So, like I said, I was in fifth grade. My family, we tent camped from Omaha to the Grand Canyon and actually camped at the Grand Canyon. But Mesa Verde, I remember, in Colorado was my favorite. That wasn't on your route. (laughs) Uh, But that was, uh, I had more fun at Mesa Verde, and we spent several days uh, camping there in a tent um, as we had to back time to our uh, reservation at the at the Grand Canyon, but Mesa Verde in Colorado was my absolute favorite part of that's my favorite memory of that trip. Oh, and if you spent that much time there, you outdid us. And I wish we had, and we want to go back because we weren't planning to stop there, and we were we stayed in Durango, and we were just kind of stopping. Part part of what I do is I follow rivers and streams and stop and look at them. And Mary's indulgent on that, and so that was part of our route was based on that. And when I talked to my son, Casey, he said, or texted when we were in Durango, he said, are you going to Mesa Verde? And I hadn't, we hadn't really discussed it. And so we started talking about it just on a whim, went there. Oh my gosh, is that a wonderful place? And again, not a high pressure place, not packed with people. And what you guys must've seen, uh, we tried to see what we could in just a few hours. And what we saw was amazing of these cliff dwellings, Mm -hmm. but it's it's a place that demands more than a few hours. And yeah, you're lucky that you had it. I think. Yeah, it was several days and and lots of I re, I remember grinding corn, uh, as as a child. <laughs> so yeah, in the cliffs, it was beautiful. That's cool. It was That's very cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. There. Other moments that you wanna? Well, actually, we only have about well, a minute left, Kevin. So other moments that you wanna discuss quickly? Well. We were surprised by Capitol Reef National Park and 
not just the wonderful canyons that we hiked down, but the fact that the Fremont River runs there, and that had acquired that had attracted Mormon settlers. So in the middle of this desert, you've got this old, old orchards of nuts and fruits and berries and uh, apples, and we were able to pick uh, golden delicious, red delicious apples, and in season you can pick nuts and apricots, pears, peaches. So this oasis in the middle of the desert that we hadn't expected to find, and it was just wonderful. All right. Kevin Wooster, I want to thank you for coming on the program today, and welcome back from your vacation. Hey, thanks, Kara. Good to talk to you. Let's take a moment for safety before saddling up. Up to 50 riders saddle up each year at the Buffalo Roundup in Custer State Park. They work in teams to bring in the buffalo herds and guide them past a crowd of thousands of spectators. Some riders have been participating in the annual Roundup for years. Some are first-time wranglers. No matter their experience level, every participating rider must attend a safety meeting with team leaders just before the roundup begins. SDPB was in the room during the meeting and captured the leader's final briefing with their riders. Take a listen. Safety is number one. So if you have any issues, you need to stop. You need to address that, take care of that first. We don't want anybody to get hurt. So if we do have any buffalo that have injuries um they're just thin they're wanting to fall behind just let them fall back and let them go is there any questions people have after doing the ride about the buffalo what to watch for what you saw now's the time to ask them good the job's gonna be easy bear in mind that by the time you get over to the fence over there your horse is because he swelled up when you sensed him up this morning and he that appeared to be really tight. He ain't gonna be when you get over there. So redo that sense. There's nothing like the fun of having a sense or a saddle turn sideways when you're running buffalo. It's a it's an experience you will remember, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> and then along the driveway when we're coming in, please stay off to the edge of the crowd. They're going to want to take your pictures. Feel free to do that, but try to get off to the side and, and oblige them to do that. If your horse gets you jerking you around like mine did yesterday, don't hesitate to drop back. You should be on your toes watching those buffalo. And again, remember that watch those cows because when they get starting to look kind of like sideways at you, they're getting ready. And then watch those tails. That tail goes up. It's one of two things that we said. Charge or discharge. And like we were saying, we had one horse get gutted here a few years ago, and we don't need that. All right. I'll say a prayer here for us, and then we'll ride out and get ready. Father, we just come to you on this day, Lord, giving you the thanks and the blessings, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity. In this event, we ask for your favor, your safety over all the horses, the people, the bison, the spectators, the staff that makes this come together. We thank you for your great creation, Lord, that you've blessed us with, and also that you've given us the caretaker position over this. We thank you, we love you, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Those were remarks from the final briefing to riders during the 58th annual Custer State Park Buffalo Roundup. The buffalo were vaccinated and sorted for 
an auction in November. The next roundup is the last Friday in September of 2024. There's more in the moment after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Kara Hetland in for Lori Walsh, and I'm looking outside on this rainy, dreary day, and I'm thinking, I already miss summer. Boy, it's going to be a long winter. Anyway, last August, local band The Clover Fold joined In the Moment ahead of their Prairie Song show that was hosted by South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And they joined another band, Humbletown, for an outdoor summertime performance across the state. Here's a recording of The Clover Fold from yet another summer show. Here's their performance at the Levitt at the Falls in Sioux Falls. Take a listen. Running away, we pound and slap against the ground, and 
Overfold performing at the Levitt at the Falls in Sioux Falls earlier this summer. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Ken Burns will join in the moment to discuss his upcoming documentary, The American Buffalo. That's right, Ken Burns is coming on the program tomorrow. And we'll be covering his research and the amazing story of the giant of the plains from its miraculous conservation to its persisting cultural significance. There's a fascinating tale behind the creatures, and we can't wait to share that with you. Plus, the sixth National Economic Impact Study of Arts and Culture nonprofits is currently underway. That's coming up on tomorrow's In the Moment. I'm Kara Hetland in for Lori Walsh. Have a great day.